Well, today, you know, is a special day where millions of people around the world uh, celebrate. It's a holiday, of great rejoicing. Uh, millions of people around the world today rejoice that today is the 504th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses of the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. So millions of people around the world today are celebrating Reformation Day in light of what Martin Luther has done. Now, Luther's goal, that, that event which sparked the Protestant Reformation, his goal was, was really small to begin with. He wanted to start an academic conversation, the academic debate, really, to talk about the abuses and some of the idolatry that was occurring within the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was uh, selling indulgences. They were these promises and, and pieces of paper that promised freedom from purgatory and punishment after death if you only paid the right price. So there was a, a priest, uh, Johann Tetzel, who was wandering around in Luther's area, and he was, I mean, he was a capable salesman. He, he, was a, he could write jingles like anybody could today. Uh, he, he had a, a couple of, of good ones. So one, for example, was every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And then another one was, place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. Uh, he, he had some, some good lines, and who could resist salvation for such a little price, right? Tetzel, he, he preyed upon the poor in Luther's area by distorting the truth of God, uh, proclaiming really that the church was the source of salvation that could be doled out for a payment from your hand. And so, with silver, which was once used to betray Jesus, you could now buy Jesus' salvation. Luther... Luther knew this was wrong. And so he, he boldly wanted to declare that sinners are what we've sung about this morning, even in the Reformation song. Sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. Luther wanted to make this plain. He wanted to make plain that we do not worship things made by human hands, but we worship the one who made all things. And so, throughout the course of his life, speaking boldly and clearly and truthfully, Luther's life, his labors, and his love for Jesus led to, a, led to a recovery of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we're saved not by anything that we do, but by all what Jesus has done. And so we're here this morning in no small part due to what happened more than 500 years ago today. And the question is, that since the gospel, since the good news of Jesus Christ has been recovered, this message that we're saved through Christ alone, what will we do with it? What will we do with the gospel? Will we take this glorious message to the ends of the earth? Will we personally and individually as Christians speak boldly and clearly and truthfully in order to bring honor and glory to God and what God has done in His Son? That's really the privilege. We, that's the thing that we have the, the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 923. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you of what's taking place in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, this is uh, Luke's second volume. Luke wrote a gospel. He wrote Luke's gospel. And that chronicled Jesus' ministry on earth. Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, is chronicling the ministry of the Lord Jesus as he's risen and reigning in heaven. How is Jesus carrying out this ministry while he's in heaven? Well, he's working out his ministry through his disciples and by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what's taking place in the book of Acts. Jesus is making his salvation known through his disciples. And Jesus, very on 
Now, very early on in the book of Acts, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave his disciples the program that they were really going to follow in the book of Acts. He told them that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, so far in our study of the book of Acts, we have come through Jerusalem, we've come through Judea, and Samaria. And last week, as we began to look at Acts chapter 13, it's the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, we've begun to see that the gospel really is going to the ends of the earth. So we're looking at the fourth phase in Jesus' program of seeing his name made great among the nations. And so that's what we're continuing to think about as we finish off our study of Paul's missionary journey. His first missionary journey began in in the beginning of Acts chapter 13, and it's going to conclude at the end of Acts chapter 14. And as we begin to look at that chapter today, Acts chapter 14, I actually want us to begin at the end. So if you would kind of scroll down to verse 27. This is toward the end of Paul's missionary journey. He's returned to the church that has sent him out. And he is giving a report to the church. And this is how Luke describes this missionary journey report there in verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he, it's God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You see how Luke describes this report that Paul is giving? He talks about how God has done a great work. How God has opened a door of faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, you need to recognize that the door remains open. Right? God has opened that door and He has not closed it. People like you and me keep coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called, like Paul and Barnabas, to keep taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we need to learn some lessons from Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey. As they go and make their way through various cities, we we need to learn how it is we are called to carry the good news of Jesus Christ. The, The door remains open. And so as they speak about Jesus in each of these towns, we need to learn about how we should speak about Jesus. And here are the four lessons that I want us to learn from this text this morning that we see in God's Word. This is the outline of the sermon for you note-takers. First, we're going to see that Paul and Barnabas speak boldly so that unbelievers may believe. That's point number one. Speak boldly so that unbelievers may believe. Second, speak clearly so that the unconverted may be convicted. Speak clearly so that the unconverted may be convicted. Number three, speak truthfully so that the saints are prepared for trials. Speak truthfully so that saints are prepared for trials. And fourth, and this point will really serve as the conclusion of the sermon. Number four, speak so that all glory goes to God. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this text, I pray that you are persuaded that the door remains open and that you are personally called by the Lord Jesus to make him known among the nations. Let's begin with our first point and go back up to the beginning of the chapter. To Acts chapter 14, verse 1. And let me read verses 1 to 7 for us. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time. 
speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Well, you see there in these first seven verses that they speak boldly. But just think about what's happened. Paul and Barnabas have just been pushed out of one place. They've just been persecuted. And they've moved on to a new place. They've moved on to Iconium. And what do they do? Well, they follow their pattern. Paul has this pattern in his missionary endeavors. He always turns up the town. And then he turns up to the synagogue. And he preaches there in the synagogue. And often what happens is some believe. But then some berate him. It depends on how long he's allowed to stay in town. But if he can, he'll stay there a little while longer. But if not, he's persecuted and he moves on to preach to the Gentiles. After that, after, after having preached to the Jews in the synagogue, Paul will then move on to preach to the Gentiles. And if he's allowed to stay, he'll stay sometimes a little bit longer. But then he often gets persecuted and pushed out of town. And he moves on to the next city and he begins again, turning up at the synagogue, preaching the gospel, and on he goes. That's his pattern. And that's what we're seeing take place here. We've already seen it in chapter 13. But look at how Luke describes Paul's speech there in verse 1. Did you see it? Right at the end of verse 1, he says that he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I mean, there's a lesson for us right here in our evangelism, in our sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not just doing data transfer, right? We're not just saying, here's this information. I hope you enjoy it. No, we're calling people to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our evangelism, our proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot leave middle ground because there is no middle ground. The scriptures teach us that there are only two ways to live. We are either with Jesus or we're against Jesus. So brothers and sisters, in, in the midst of our evangelistic conversations, we need to clearly communicate that Jesus lived and died and rose again from the grave. And then we need to say, so what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to receive him or are you going to reject him? You should believe in him. You should not turn away from him. You should not continue in your sin, but you should come to him and trust in him. We should speak in such a way as to persuade people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that as we persuade, as Paul persuades and preaches to their minds, there's opposition. Did you see that in verse 2? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You see, so while we are speaking and preaching and declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, it's very possible that others are poisoning minds. I mean, maybe think about a friend you were sharing the gospel with at work, right? You're, you're talking with them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that conversation's going along well, and another friend comes up and starts mocking Jesus. Well, that's a form of kind of poisoning your friend's mind, isn't it? We need to recognize this is a reality in our experience and in our own evangelism. And we need to be praying that the Lord would protect minds and guard minds and give, give those minds a renewal and give them their hearts. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this kind of thing happens. We saw it happen in Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas were trying to share the gospel with the proconsul. But Eliamus, the magician, he was trying to distract and deceive the proconsul from hearing and believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this kind of opposition that comes up. And we need to recognize that as a reality. And not be afraid of it. 
but trust the Lord in the midst of it. And perhaps we need to do what Paul and Barnabas do. Do you see what happens? Opposition springs up in verse 2. So they remain for a long time. Don't you love that? So, okay, so opposition sprang up, so we're going to settle down. That's what Paul and Barnabas decide to do. And that's so there in verse 3. can also be translated therefore. Some of your translations might actually have that. It's, it's causal in that regard. What happened before is now the reason for our action now. So opposition springs up, and Paul and Barnabas decide to settle down. Sometimes we need to have endurance and perseverance in our conversations with our friends and family members. Sometimes we need to recognize, okay, there's, there's opposition here. There's some hostility here. We're going to gently and lovingly pray and persist in sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lesson for us from Paul and Barnabas there. Now notice that God does something as well in the midst of this. Do you see there in, in verse uh, 3, really the second half of it, that God was pleased to bear witness to the word that they were preaching and proclaiming by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So in other words, they're preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then God is pleased to work through them to do something miraculous, to verify and certify the content of their communication. That's the, that's the nature of divine signs in the scriptures. The point is not the signs and the miracles themselves. Miracles and signs and wonders are meant to certify the communication that it is faithful and true and from God. We also need to recognize uh, that this is a unique period in redemptive history. We've talked about this before in the book of Acts. This is the foundation-laying era in the history of the church. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 20 to 22, he talks about how the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ is the cornerstone with the apostles and prophets along with him. And now we, we are in the era where the foundation's already been laid, and so we're building kind of the superstructure of the church. So we, we probably shouldn't expect uh, divine signs and wonders like, like the experiencing that Paul and Barnabas are experiencing in their ministry and in their lives together, right? Paul is, is blinding magicians. He's healing crippled people. That happened with Peter as well. We, we probably shouldn't expect that kind of thing to be taking place as we're in a slightly different era of redemptive history, no longer that foundation-laying era of the church. Nevertheless, God can work mightily through us. He can bring about conversions, which is a miracle, is it not? I mean, someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins, being made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a divine working and a miracle. And God can be pleased to do that in our lives. And we, we pray that he would be pleased to do that as we share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should keep walking through that open door and sharing the good news of Jesus. Not only do Paul and Barnabas decide to settle down, not only does God decide to do great signs and wonders through their ministry, but we notice that the gospel itself, when it begins to be received and accepted, it has a certain effect, doesn't it? Do you see there in verse 4 that the whole city is divided. The whole city is divided over whether or not they're for Jesus or against Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is a reality. The gospel divides. It, it divides people between believers and unbelievers. We need to recognize this. Jesus himself promised it. So in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Jesus was honest with us that the gospel, the truth about him is going to divide. It's going to divide between people who receive Jesus and people who reject Jesus. Now, in our evangelism, we don't need to be needlessly divisive. But we do need to faithfully and boldly present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and let God do whatever work of dividing he wants to do. And yet we need to remain faithful in proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. This is how we have confidence in the mission. Now, sometimes the gospel divides, but sometimes we see here in our text, the gospel also unites. Did you see that there in verse uh, five? There is a kind of unity that takes place. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them. You see, there's now a unity that is uh, gathered around opposing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually what we read here reminds me of what took place in Jesus' life, right? Jesus had a, a band of disciples who was following him. And that was a division between his disciples and those who were opposed to him. And what did they do? Those who were opposed to him, they banded together. They united both Jews and Gentiles and rulers to try to put Jesus to death. And in fact, they succeeded. And so here we're reminded that sometimes disciples of the Lord Jesus will very often follow his path. The things that happened in Jesus' life will happen in the lives of his disciples. Sometimes there will be unified opposition against God's people. And yet we persevere in faith. We, like the Lord Jesus, entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. Though there may be unity against the gospel, even against us as the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that, um, that Paul and Barnabas, they eventually leave town, right? The pattern kind of continues to roll on. So perhaps this opposition was kind of just verbal to begin with. And now it's rising to the point where it's visceral and physical. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to leave town. Now, I don't think they're cowards. I think they've actually got a mission to complete. They, they recognize that there are a number of towns that they need to address with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you scroll down to the end of your passage there, again, back to verse 26 this time, you'll see there in verse 26, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. The idea there was that there was a, a program, it seems, when they left the church of Antioch, a program, a missionary program and journey that they were going to pass through and complete throughout their course. So Paul and Barnabas, the persecution rises to a point at Iconium. Where they feel like we need to move on to the next town. And, and so they do. Brothers and sisters, we, we've thought about a number of applications for our own evangelism here in these last uh, few minutes. But, but there's a few more here. Uh, sometimes it's going to be good and right and appropriate for us to move on. We're going to need wisdom for, for when to leave a certain situation. You know, some of you may be facing conflict in your uh, employment, division in your employment. Well, don't waste your employment. Be bold and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ there. The, the door is open there. Be, be faithful there to hold out Christ. And there may come a time where there, it's wise for you to leave that situation. Uh, oh, the door is open wherever you are. So be bold wherever you are. If that's in your, your neighborhood, or in your school, or on your sports team, or some extracurricular activity, faithfully, boldly, present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And should the Lord decide you to move on, pray for wisdom in that circumstance, and, and then move along. But while you are where you are, do what Paul and Barnabas do. Boldly declare the Lord Jesus Christ so the people might believe in Him. Well, Paul and Barnabas moved on. 
and so should we. Let's move on to our second point. Here's the second lesson we learn from this text. Speak clearly so that the unconverted may be convicted. We, we can also say this too. Speak clearly so that the unconverted clearly understand who God is. See if you can see some of those ideas as we read verses 8 to 18. Verses 8 to 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So here's, the, here's the big picture that I want you to, to see really in this section. I want you to grasp. Paul and Barnabas do not allow the people of Lystra to live in the fog of the false gods that they want to worship. No, they speak clearly and truthfully that there is one true and living God. But that's not where Luke begins this part of his account, is it? He doesn't begin with the crowd. He begins with the cripple there in verse uh, 8. Do you see him there? Notice that three times Luke describes his condition in verse 8. He des describes this man's total inability to walk three times. He could not use his feet, Luke says. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. You see that there? Luke is describing that this man could not heal himself. And his physical condition is certainly an analogy to our spiritual condition. We cannot, in and of ourselves, get up and go to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has to heal our hearts so they're restored to love Him and serve Him and honor Him. And this man, it seems, his heart was healed. I don't know if you notice verse 9 there. Uh, he's listening uh, to Paul speaking. And Paul, he looks intently at him. Now we see, saw this same kind of language a chapter earlier. Um, Eliamus, the magician who was trying to lead people astray, Paul looked intently at him too. And Paul pronounced judgment upon him. But here, Paul pronounces a blessing upon this man as he heals him. But notice what Paul sees as he looks intently at him. He has this divine insight. He saw that Eliamus was evil and wicked and deceiving. And he sees that this man has faith to be made well. Now Luke is using a play on words here. Uh, you might have a footnote in your, your Bible passage that, that says, or to be saved. That phrase, to be made well, can also be translated to be saved. And I actually think that that's probably the, the, the better translation in this situation. 
I mean, after all, what does Paul do when he gets to town? He doesn't go around preaching that Jesus has the power just to heal your physical body. No, no, no. His principal message is that Jesus has the power to heal your sin-sick soul. And so here this man is listening. And I think what Luke is trying to communicate to us is that he has the faith that Jesus can heal his sin-sick soul. It's probably similar to what happens in Jesus' own ministry. Something similar happens in Mark chapter 2. Maybe you remember that scene where Jesus, uh, where these, the, the, the house is crowded and the roof kind of opens up and these friends lower their paralytic man, their paralytic friend down. Uh, and, and the text says, and Jesus looking at them and seeing their faith, Jesus then he speaks to the paralytic and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. So he, he sees the faith of these friends and I think the faith of the paralytic man as well. And he says, son, your, your sins are forgiven. And everybody, of course, is, is pretty upset about what Jesus is saying in that moment, right? They, they think he's blaspheming God. And so what does Jesus do? He says, well, so that you all here, who are disagreeing with what I'm saying here, so that you all here know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, and he says to the paralytic man, take up your bed and walk. And what does he do? He, he takes up his bed and he walks. And so his physical healing was evidence that Jesus was able to heal the soul. It was that, that visible healing that took place that was proof that Jesus could heal the hidden part of that man's soul. And that's probably what's happening here with this paralytic. That healing of his, this, sorry, this crippled man, uh, the healing of his body was probably evidence that Jesus had healed his soul as well. And just like people misunderstood Jesus and his healing, the crowd, they, they misunderstand Paul, don't they? Uh, they, they think now that we, we have a God right here in the flesh. Um, and there's, there's a bit of irony to this, isn't it? Because there's a certain sense in which God did come down in the likeness of human flesh, didn't he? God himself took on flesh and he lived among us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're identifying the wrong man. And Paul, through, through careful teaching, he, he clarifies, doesn't he? He says, no, 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 men. We are men just like you. We're of like nature. Paul is disabusing them of the notion that he's one of these gods. Now, he doesn't, he, he's not a god. He's a servant of the one true God. He, he tells them that. But, but what else does he tell them there? I, I, I'm, I'm a man just like you. And we bring you good news. That, that's the message of salvation that Paul has been preaching. We're, we're here to, to preach the, the good news. Right? But then he also tells them, you, you, you should turn from vain things to a living God. I mean, just in that phrase, right, vain things to a living God, what's Paul doing? He's telling them that the gods that they worship are empty and that it's foolish for them to keep giving their lives to them. And he's telling them that their gods are dead. They're not living like his God, right? Paul is teaching them that their gods that they worship are dead and empty. They cannot satisfy them. But the God that he worships and serves can save them. And is alive. And he's the God of all creation, actually. He, he, he's the God who, who blessed them and so kindly gave them food and rains. Paul is, is reminding us of this teaching uh, of, of natural revelation, right? How it reveals God. God witnesses to us through the created order. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that, that everybody is without excuse because the created order testifies to the truth that God is alive and at work and he's powerful. So Paul is 
patiently clarifying the truth of who their gods are and who his God is. And we, we look at this crowd and, and maybe we're surprised that they are so ready to, to worship and so vigorous in, in their attempts to worship. But friends, we need to recognize this about us as human beings. We were ready made to worship. God made us for worship. The question is not will we worship. The question is who or what will we worship. So, so, so this town, right, they, they, they worship these false gods. But who do you worship? What are, are your idols? What crops up in your life? What do you protect? What do you spend your time on? What do you spend your, your treasure on? What do you spend your talent on? What are the, the gods that perhaps you worship? Is it wealth or health or safety or security or science or the American dream? Do you want to have a house and perfectly healthy kids, 2.5 of them and a white picket fence and a dog or a cat? I mean, what, what is it that you worship, that you're spending yourself for, that you're organizing your life around? Whose commands do you obey? Whose creed do you utter back? What is the God that you serve? And Christians, brothers and sisters here this morning, we're not exempt from this either. We're tempted to idolatry. One of the great reformers said that the human heart is an idol factory. We're really good at making idols, aren't we? And worshiping the wrong thing. So what are some of those things that crowd God out of your life, brothers and sisters? What are those things that you allow time to uh, that, that crowd out your time with the Lord and reading His Word and praying and fellowshipping with His people or perhaps even uh, turning up here on Sunday mornings? What are those things that you are serving that are making you serve them? And often we, we come to realize we, we see an idol in our life that we don't have quite as much control over as we thought we did. Often it reminds us that, oh, we need the Lord Jesus to, to break this idol. And He is lovingly in the business of crushing idols. But that only happens when we speak clearly and honestly about the idols that are out there. It's one of our callings in the Christian life is when we're in conversations with our, our friends about the Lord Jesus, their idols, their gods that they worship, they're going to emerge in the conversation. You're going to hear the gods they worship and serve through the things that they talk about in their schedule, through, through the things that they're afraid of or anxious about. That they're not entrusting to the Lord. And, and that's an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord Jesus. But perhaps uh, it'll, it'll come out, their idols will come out in those things that feel like, man, I, I reached this goal, but I'm not really satisfied. I, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, of an interview with uh, Tom Brady back in 2005. Many of you probably remember this interview. Um, Brady said this in an interview. He said, um, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, me. I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. What else is there for me? It's an interesting question, right? What else is there for me? I've reached my goals. But what else is there for me? Is this really all that there is? Is what he says. And you, you know what the interviewer asked him? Croft, he, he asked him this question. So what's the answer to that? Right? Well, what else is there for you? And you know, you know what Brady said? I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew. Here, you, here you've reached the heights of kind of athletic prowess, right? And you still feel empty. 
Idols will do that to you. Whatever your idols or false gods are, they're empty and they'll leave you empty. And speaking clearly to our friends about that, our our loved ones, people who don't know the Lord Jesus, is compassionate. It's loving to tell them those dead gods will not give you life. But the living God will. Right? The living God will. So, friends, I, I ask you, just reflecting on this section of Scripture, do you have faith to be made well, made alive by the living God? Do you have faith to be saved from worthless idols? Idols that cannot satisfy you. Friends, the Lord Jesus said that he can satisfy our souls. And he can. Friend, as long as you're worshiping dead things, you will not be alive. And you were made to worship. But like Adam and like all of humanity, except the Lord Jesus Christ, we've all worshiped and served created things. We've all turned away from God and decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And God is not only loving, He's holy, just, and good. And so in His holiness, in His justice, in His goodness, He has to punish sin. And so we, having sinned against the infinite and eternal God, are in danger of facing infinite and eternal punishment for our sins forever in hell. But God did not leave us there. The living God came down in the likeness of man. Indeed, Jesus, He was fully man and fully God. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He did not serve the false gods of this world. He served the one true and living God in the whole course of his life. He kept the law, all that we could not do. Every act of righteousness that God calls and commands of us, we failed at, Jesus perfectly did. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And thus himself being perfect. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and me. He laid down his life on the cross. He died on the cross. And in so he was punished for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus in his death was paid the wages for our working in sin. And yet, three days later, after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that he is the living and true God. And Jesus now calls us to turn from our sin and to place our faith in him to believe that he can make us well. Friend, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter the ways in which you have given yourself to sin. Jesus is a mighty Savior. As John Newton once said, His mercies are greater than all of our miseries. Friend, He can save you. He can make you well. So turn from your sins and your false idols and believe upon Him this day and you will be saved. This is kind and loving. We need to speak clearly. We need to speak in such a way that clarifies who God is. That's what Paul has done. Sometimes those are going to be difficult conversations with our friends, right? Our our friends might have notions already in their mind of who God is, right? They they might come to us and say, God is love. And so I, I can live in all of these kinds of ways. Well, it's true that God is love. But God is also holy and just, isn't he? And so sometimes we need to faithfully clarify who God is for our friends. We need to believe upon the one true God. In order to do that, we need to have a true picture of who he is in his life, and who Jesus is in his life and ministry. So this is part of our calling. To the open door, wherever it is we are, to speak clearly about God. And we even need to leave conversions to God. Do you, do you notice how verse 18 speaks of how they could barely you know, restrain them from, from the people offering sacrifice to them? So we want to do our best, right? 
to help people not sacrifice to false gods. But at the same time, we, we can't in and of ourselves make people worship the one true God. So we speak clearly and we leave conversions to God. We speak, pray that God would convict and that God would convert and we leave that in His hands. But not only do we speak boldly and clearly, but we're also called to speak truthfully. And this is the, the, the next point that I want to point out. Speak truthfully so that saints are prepared for trials. This is what we find in verses 19 to 23. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. <laughs> These are just remarkable verses, aren't they? Paul, uh, sorry, Luke kind of chronicles the rest of Paul's travel log to a great, a great degree. But, but before he, he uh, gets out of town, uh, we see that he, he's stoned there, right? Um, you see that really in, in verses, uh, verse 19. He escaped in Iconium in verses 4 to 6. He escaped that stoning plot that was there. But he, but he doesn't escape this time, does he? And it's interesting that Luke mentions that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So right, he, these Jews, from Antioch at least, they're coming from 100 miles away. Right? They're, like, they're zealous in wanting to, to stop this Christian message that Paul is preaching. And, and they would not come that far to fail. Right? Um, they, they, they really did believe that Paul was dead. And just, just think about how stoning would happen. It sometimes happened in a, a variety of different ways, but often, right, you start with the small stones, you pelt the guy, you get him down to the ground, and then people would bring in the big stones and drop them on him and pile them up on him until he's dead. Uh, and then, once they're convinced he's dead, they uncover him, and then what do they do here with Paul? They drag him out of town. Stoning would sometimes happen in a couple other ways, but that's one of the main ways it would happen. So they are, are, are genuinely, sincerely convinced that Paul's dead. That he's left for dead. And verse 20 is just amazing, isn't it? Right? You have uh, the disciples gathering around Paul. And who knows what they're doing there? Maybe they're praying. They're weeping. They've, they've lost a friend. Someone who's taught the word to them. Who's told them about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean, Luke just so calmly describes it, doesn't it? It's just like as if nothing happened. Right? There they are. They're gathered about him. He rose up. He entered into the city. Right? He goes back into the city that has just stoned him. I mean, that is, that's gritty. That's gutsy, isn't it? Uh, Paul, he was not afraid. He's an he's amazing man. Uh, and not only that, he, he's, he's, I mean, he's got to be bruised. He's got to be bloody. He's got to be severely injured. And the next day, he travels. I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I do something for a day that takes great physical exertion, it's usually not that day that I am sore or achy. It's usually the next day 
that I'm feeling the pain in my, my joints and things like that. And here is Paul, a day after his stoning, traveling 65 miles, some scholars think. He's going to Derby, 65 miles away. And I mean, that journey itself is grueling. Uh, Paul is, is, is an amazing man. And, and, and another thing that's fascinating about this little section from Luke, I mean, there in verse 21, what does Paul do? Right, he's just been stoned for preaching the gospel. And verse 21, he preaches the gospel to that city. I mean, when you're that close to death, what, what do you have to lose, right? It's kind of invigorating and life-giving. He just goes and preaches again, doesn't he? he? He's not afraid. He knows that Jesus has been crowned Lord of all. He knows that he's been given a commission to go and preach and proclaim. The same commission, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has given to us, right? In the Great Commission. Jesus has commissioned us to go. We ought to have this kind of persistence that Paul has. And then, in, in the space of a verse, we turn right back around and go through a series of cities. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, right? There, that city of persecution and opposition. To Iconium, also a city of persecution and opposition. And to Antioch, a city of persecution and opposition. Right, we're there and back again in a verse, right? It, it, it's striking. You, you would think that after having meditated on these several cities uh, where Paul has faced such difficult opposition, that Luke would want to meditate on the win that happens here, right? In verse 21, we're told that he made many disciples. Why don't we, Luke, why don't we just linger there for a little while and just enjoy the win? Why, why do you focus on the L's, as the cool kids say, right? Why do you focus on these losses? And notice, notice how disciples are made. Disciples are made through gospel preaching ministry. That's how disciples are made, brothers and sisters. If you want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to put yourself in the way of and under regular gospel preaching. That's what we're endeavoring to do here week by week, to make disciples through the preaching of God's word. Now, just as a pastor, I have to like pause and think about this for my own soul for a minute, right? Why, why doesn't Luke meditate on the winds? Just think about this for myself. Maybe because the successes in ministry, if we could put them in quotes, they could tempt us to distraction. They could tempt us to, to puff ourselves up when we need to remain focused on the work that's before us. We want to praise God for the work that he's done. But perhaps... Lingering too long on those successes could shift our focus from faithfulness. At least that's a counsel that I need to perhaps give my own soul from time to time. But Paul himself, he has pastoral counsel. Do you see there in verse 22? Verse 22, the B, uh, kind of halfway through there, I guess. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples as he's returning to these three cities that he's been kicked out of. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. I mean, this is the work of pastoral ministry, to tell saints over and over and over again, don't leave Jesus. He won't leave you. He will never leave you or forsake you. So hold on to him. Hold on to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, continue in the faith. There is a lot of opposition, a lot of difficulty that you are going to face this week, a lot of temptation. Satan will tempt you to despair. He will tell you of the guilt within, but the Lord Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Hold on to him and don't let him go. That's Paul's pastoral counsel 
to these churches who are facing difficulty. He left those towns, but those saints, they had to stay there. They had to stay there. Paul, if you know his life story, he not only has a pastoral counsel to continue on in the faith, but he actually has a pastoral perspective. If you were to read one of his last letters, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, Paul strings these three cities together, and he talks about his suffering and persecution, and he says, God rescued me. He doesn't look at these cities that he's been kicked out of as places of defeat, but places of deliverance. Brothers and sisters, think about that perspective for your own trials in this life, right? Think about the trials that you have gone through. Perhaps you look back on them and you feel as though they are places of defeat. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has sustained you. He's delivered you. He's rescued you. And you're going to face another trial. And he'll rescue you from that one too. Until he rescues you eternally and brings you home to dwell with him. Every place that feels like a defeat in the past, brothers and sisters, is a place of God's deliverance. I mean, I've known that in my life. You've probably known it in your life too. If you know my um, story, my history somewhat as a pastor, you know that I've been kicked out of a church. It's not something that I talk about a lot. It's not actually something I like to talk about. I'm not proud of it. There are some Baptist preachers who are like, you know, you're not really a pastor, and you don't really know how to pastor, so you've been kicked out of a church. Just, that's false. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. Um, it was a difficult experience. It's not one I want to go through again. I don't plan to go, on, go through it again. Um, but as I look back on God's, God's work in the midst of that, it was not a place of defeat. It was a place of deliverance through which I've known and loved some of you dearly uh, and been strengthened in the faith through you. It was God's kindness to me, his deliverance to me. That's how God often works in our lives. These places of defeats, he is pleased to turn into places of deliverance, to rescue us through. And notice just how truthfully Paul speaks to them. Now, this is Luke's kind of description of what Paul is saying in this verse, verse uh, 22, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, you may want to memorize that phrase. That phrase will give you life and help to keep going on. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Just think about it word by word. It's through them, not around them. Christian, you're going to go through them. You will make it through them. Depend upon your God. He will drag you through them. It is through many of them. Thanks, Paul. That's a word of encouragement, right? Through, through many of them. Maybe you're in the midst of one now. You'll get through it if the Lord gives you life. And if he gives you life and breath, you'll meet another tribulation. There will be many of them in the course of your life. And after all, it's through tribulations, right? Plural, not singular, not just one. It's something that we, did you notice that? I so appreciate that word, we. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we're going through them together. Lean on Christ, lean on me, lean on one another. We are walking through tribulations together. We need to love one another, help one another in the midst of them. It's part of how God means to sustain us in them. You're connected to Christ, you're connected to his church. Don't go through them alone. Tell your brothers and sisters about your trials. It's something that we, you see there, we must go through. There's no other way. This is part of how God is going to fit you for heaven. You're not ready until you've gone through them. It's how he's going to wean you off of your sinful love of the world. 
and give you an expanding love for Christ and His glory and His kingdom. It's how He gets you ready. We must go through them. It's how He's going to purify you and polish you in order, as the book of Jude says, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. I mean, think about that. You're going to be presented before the Lord Jesus Christ as a trophy of grace. What a kindness. And it's the entrance to the kingdom of God. If your life is not punctuated again and again by trials because of your faith in Jesus, because of the king, then you might wonder if you're bound for the kingdom. Think about that. If your life is not punctuated again and again with trials and tribulations because of your faith in Jesus, because of the king, then you might wonder if you're bound for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is how Christians make it home. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Christian, memorize that phrase. This is how God prepares us. It's how Paul prepared these saints. It's how he prepared them for trials. And it's the honest truth that we need to speak to one another. Paul gives a pastoral counsel, a pastoral perspective. And he also gives a pastoral pattern there you see in verse 23. He gives a plurality of elders to the church, doesn't he? We have multiple elders. In the New Testament, uh, whenever we meet pastors, we meet them in the plural. Churches in the New Testament were supposed to have a body of men, multiple men, caring for, leading, guiding the church. And brothers, brother elders here in this church family, what a joy it is to serve you. I think what we've just seen from Paul, Luke's description of Paul's uh, counsels to the church, urging saints to continue on the faith. Brothers, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to tell our sheep. Hold on to Jesus. That, that's, that's how we teach them to keep holding on to Christ. Brothers, we, we need to teach them, you, you've got to persevere through this. The Lord is going to see you through this. The Lord is going to bear you through this. And we ourselves has to, have to persevere through them too. We have to be a model for the sheep who are following behind us, brothers. We have to be like Jesus, following God and entrusting ourselves to Him all the way through. And we have to reassure them. Brothers, the sheep need to be reassured. They are fearful and afraid. We need to tell them they're going to make it home. We need to encourage them in that way. Brothers, here's the work that we're to do. Continue in the faith. Help them persevere. Reassure that they have a God who keeps them. And so they cannot be lost. Let's give ourselves to this good work. We need to speak boldly and clearly and truthfully. Let's turn now and consider our fourth and final point, which is also going to serve as really the conclusion of the sermon. Here it is. Speak so that all glory goes to God. Take a look at verses 24 uh, to the end of the chapter. Verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Well, here we we return to the place where we began, really at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. Luke finishes up Paul and Barnabas' travelogues. He lands them safely back at their sending church there in Antioch. Paul's first missionary journey began, and now it's ended. And here it is. We we get a, a conclusion, really, to the matter. Paul, in every place, he preached the gospel, preached God's free grace everywhere he went. He proclaimed that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ 
alone, all to the glory of God alone. And as he wraps up his missionary journey, we see this Luke's description of his reporting back. We see that he tells the triumphs of God's grace. Right? Paul doesn't say, I did this, I did that. He, he doesn't say, I blinded a magician and I saved a proconsul. You should have been there. It was awesome. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I preached in synagogues. I healed a crippled man. You should have seen the look on their faces. He didn't say, I was nearly stoned to death and I got back up and I walked right back into that city. No, he doesn't point to himself, does he? He points away. It was God who worked signs and wonders. It was God who attended his word, who opened the door to the Gentiles. It was God who saved sinners. As God is pleased to use us, brothers and sisters, to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ, as I hope and trust he will, this is how we should speak. This is how we should report on what God has done. We should speak to give all glory to God. It's what Martin Luther did as he looked back on uh, the success of the Reformation, uh, the recovery of the gospel and the Protestant Reformation. This is what Luther said in his typical inflammatory way in his joy and beer. He wrote, I simply taught, preached, and translated God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and Amstorf, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. The word did it all. God working through his word does it all. Indeed, Luther left the recovery of the gospel to God and his working through his word. God deserves all glory and honor. So let us speak boldly. Brothers and sisters, the door is, is open. Sometimes we close the door in front of ourselves by not speaking. The door is open. You don't get to close it. It's open and God says, go and share the gospel. Speak boldly so that unbelievers may believe in our glorious God. Let us speak clearly so that the unconverted may be convicted and so that they may clearly understand who our God is and how great and gracious he is. Let us speak truthfully so that saints are prepared for trials and entering the kingdom. And in all of this, our God will be glorified. Let's pray for him to be glorified now. Let's pray together.